0: Welcome to the Full Frontal Living Podcast. I'm Lisa Carpenter, Master Life Coach to driven, ambitious humans who want more out of life without having to sacrifice themselves to achieve it. I'll share how it's possible to slow down, take better care of yourself, find more peace and ease, create sustainable energy, stop procrastination and overwhelm, and fall in love with your life, your business, and your body. This podcast is for you if you're ready to learn what it takes to thrive as a high performer, do less, but achieve more, make you and your well-being a top priority, and create your extraordinary life. I'm so glad you're here. Hey, hey, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the Full Frontal Living Podcast. And today I've got a very special guest on. She's been on the podcast before And I will link in the show notes, the episodes that she's already, we've already had powerful conversations. This is like my best friend, my, my colleague, my wing woman, uh, my, my, my wife, (laughs) like you're like my wife now, uh, my good friend, Sarah Antonado. And I'm so, so thrilled to have her back on. She has just released her book, which, you know, took a little bit of prodding to get it out the door. Uh, But she is here today and we are going to talk about her new book, Emotional Healing for Parents with Children of Autism, The Journey You Never Expected to Take. And this book, I am not kidding you, is going to change lives because there's nothing really like it out on the market. So before I like blabble on about how much I love you, Sarah, can you introduce yourself to everybody, give everybody your fancy bio, and then we're going to dive into a really powerful conversation
1: my fancy bio is that I am a coach consultant for parents of kids with needs and disabilities. So that includes neurodiverse kids, kids with autism, ADHD, kids with medical complexities, and really I'm the coach for their parents because parenting a child with needs is something that, let's just face it, a lot of parents of, I'll use air quote, normal kids just don't understand. And I've seen that there's a lot of distrust in this population when typical people try to give them advice. Cause I think, Oh yeah, that sounds really nice, but you don't understand my life at all. So my specialty is showing these families that all members of the family can thrive and helping them find their way. And this book is a labor of love, as you know, and it's the book that I wish I had when my child was diagnosed at age two. I have two kids and my older child has both autism and apraxia and I searched high and low for the book that was going to help me, the mom, get through the experience relatively unscathed and feeling healed and supported. And the book didn't exist. There were zillions of books about my kids' gut bacteria, what therapies to get them, all these things. Nothing for me. So thankfully, my background was in yoga, spirituality, healing. And I just, healed myself because it was the only thing I really knew how to do at a time where my whole life felt crazy. I didn't think I was doing anything special. I was just doing what I knew how to do. And then as I picked my head up years later, feeling whole and healed and complete and grateful for my family and seeing the beauty in our life, though different from the lives of most people, I noticed that most of this population was not thriving at all. Many of them were very much still in survival mode, even years after the diagnosis. They were not encouraged to heal themselves as parents. They were encouraged to do more, 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 more for their kid, not much for themselves, maybe a passing remark about go to the therapist or something, or you know, have more date nights, but nothing real, no tools. And 10 years later my son's diagnosis is now a decade old. The book for parents still didn't exist, so I just decided I was going to write the thing, and I did, and it hit number one in the uh, bestseller category 24 24 hours after it was released this week in autism, and that meant a lot to me because it meant it was resonating with families who I wanted it to resonate with, who really needed these tools most of all, so That's my backstory. I live in Montauk, New York. I surf. There's actually a documentary about my son Rocco called Rocco Up, and it's a short 22-minute film about his journey learning how to surf, and that was actually the precursor to the book. It was during that process I realized, oh, maybe we are doing some things right over here as parents, and it's an important film to me because it showcases basically him doing things that people said he would never be able to do. He wasn't coordinated enough. He didn't have the core strength to do it. He didn't have the processing skills to do it. And yet we have a documentary about him doing it. So I love to tell that to parents because you don't have to subscribe to the things being told to you by the experts. Mm. You you have to trust that you're the expert in your kid and that can feel edgy sometimes.
0: Well, you answered my first question because I was going to ask you, you know, what was the reasoning behind writing this book, which I think you were just so clearly articulated there because- you know, in both of our work, we focus on the individual and I can see how parents with neurodiverse kids, how the focus is completely off of them and entirely on um, their child. And there really is no down, there's no downtime, which is like unbelievable. And so I wanted to kind of go back to, because I think that this is something and I see this in my work as well, something happens. And most people, most women just put their head down and get to work because this is what we have to do, right? We, we got to survive. We got to figure it out. Like I'll deal with it after this is the type of audience that I work with, right? I'll deal with it after, but they never actually circle back around to what was created in the moment that that experience happened, that, that, that trauma occurred. And most of us I would assume go into pregnancy, assuming that we're going to have a healthy, you know, quote unquote, normal, what is normal anymore child. So receiving a diagnosis like autism or any type of, you know, neurodiversity is very, very dysregulating, but again, like you got to get to work. So I would love to hear more about what it was like for you to receive that diagnosis. Like How did that impact you?
1: I immediately felt like, oh, well, obviously this is my fault, right? Like I must've done something wrong. And for me, I was the person who really wanted to do everything right. And gratefully, I had now over a decade of yoga under my belt, daily practice, several trips to India, healing myself caring for myself through diet and and good habits, sleep. So and all if of- I
0: if I could just pause you for a yeah. moment, sir, because I'm really, I, I really want to know what started that journey? Because you actually came into getting this diagnosis with a foundation. So if you could just back up a little bit sure. and share with everybody like what even started that journey of healing for you.
1: Yeah. I was in university going to the gym for exercise like a lot of people were and started going into yoga classes to change it up. That was really it. And then what happened was 9 11 happened. Mm-hmm. I was in a really rigorous program. I was a scholarship student at Boston University. So I felt pressure to achieve, keep my grades up, keep my scholarship, perform well. I'd always been an overachiever. I'm an older child. I, you know, I felt the need to self impose, need to do everything really well. And About a month after 9-11 happened, I had friends who lost parents. I had friends whose parents were you know, trapped and, and not reachable for 24 hours, families not knowing if their loved ones were alive, all around me, like surrounding me. And didn't think anything of it at the time, was just handling it. And about a month later, I was sitting in class and all of a sudden felt like I couldn't breathe. And I started having really intense anxiety attacks didn't know what they were at the time. I just thought I was dying. You know, the only person I knew who was having anxiety attacks was Tony Soprano on TV. I didn't know anyone in real life who had them. And so I really thought, Oh, there's something really wrong with me. And so I took myself to the doctor and I lived close to home. So I went to my my doctor who I had for years, told her what was going on. There was nothing physically wrong with me, but I was having panic attacks. And she said, you know, you're only 20 and Rather than jumping the gun on pharmaceuticals, why don't you tell me more about what's happening in your life? And so I shared a lot with her and she asked what I did for myself. And I told her I went to the gym and I did yoga sometimes. And she said, you know, Christmas break is coming up. I'm going to ask you to turn up the volume on yoga. Go to more classes over your break. You're going to have a break from school. You'll have the time. And let's touch base at the end of your break before you start class again. And we'll see where you're at. So I did. And I started to notice that it was the only time of day when my brain felt quiet. I didn't know how it worked. I didn't know why it worked. None of that mattered at the time. I just knew I felt different. I came home feeling different. And I could hear my parents, you know, talking in the next room because I was home for break. And they were like, I don't know what she's doing. Do you think she's in a cult? And the other one's like, I don't know if she's in a cult. But she seemed happier so I think whatever she's doing she should just keep doing it and I, it was so cute I remember hearing them talk about it and I remember them telling me like my parents were very frugal I was raised to like do things yourself if you want to go on spring break you're paying for yourself you're paying for your own books you're doing things yourself and I remember them coming to me <laughs> over Christmas break and they are like do you need more money for yoga classes before you go back to school and for me I was like oh geez they must really like this for me because they would have never offered that otherwise and I just kept doing it because I felt better. It was not complicated. And about a year later, I became a teacher. I was still at university because I wanted to learn more about it, really. I was curious as to why does this work? How does this work? And then I ended up teaching a few classes I really enjoyed it. I was trying to decide if I wanted to apply to Wall Street or law school and neither really called to me, but all my friends were doing that and that's what I was supposed to do. So I thought, you know, I'm going to teach yoga for the summer and then I'll decide in the fall what I want to do. Then the fall came around. And I thought, I think I'm going to finish the year teaching yoga and then I'll decide. And then after that, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to law school or anything else. I'm I'm doing this. This, I believe in this. It healed me. I know it can heal other people. I'm going to keep doing it. And I did. And I thought that was going to be my career for the rest of my life. Mm. And then I had a child with autism. And, you know, as I started sharing that with people, they, are, they all started telling me, you should be the next Jenny McCarthy. You should write books. And I was like, no, that's not what I signed up for. I'm supposed to share this ancient healing technique that healed my life. That's what I want to do. That's what I signed up to do. I don't want anything to do with this over here, but I think really what I was saying is that I can't help anyone when I'm just barely keeping my head above water. Mm -hmm. I need to make sense of this first. So I spent many years still teaching yoga as my career, believing in it wholeheartedly and doing my own healing work. And it wasn't until my son was probably 10, so eight years post-diagnosis that I felt like, okay, I think I have something to share now. I think I'm in a really happy place in my life where I appreciate him and I don't want to change him. And I and I also never settle when I know he can do better and needs more supports. And I never inhibit his potential. I always believe in him and and I'm happy with my life and who I am. And then I thought, okay, maybe I'm gonna think about switching gears a little more seriously now and see if that feels good.
0: Right. And it did. It did, okay. but so, that's how so I now that. take us back to what that was like when Rocco was first diagnosed for you and your yeah. family. Cause you were, you know, like most of the women that I work with kind of a type high achieving, put a lot of pressure on yourself. I heard perfectionism in there. Yeah. So this must've been devastating in the moment for you.
1: It was, I
0: remember
1: feeling deep, deep sadness inside and feeling like I didn't know who to express it to. I couldn't really talk to my husband or my parents about it because I didn't want to make them sad and I could feel their worry and their sadness around. And, and I, so I felt like I had to hold it in, but at the same time, I felt so much shame. Here I was the A student, the person who got everything right. And I thought, well, clearly I failed miserably. I, you know, had my kids at home with no drugs, I nursed them, I made all their baby food from organic produce from the local farm. I, you know, I I didn't cut corners. I really lovingly put my whole heart into being the best mom that I could be and spending quality time with them. And I thought, how did this happen to me? I had plenty of why me victim moments in there. I thought, how did this happen to me this is so unfair how, you know, so-and-so down the road who sticks her kid in front of a TV every day and, you know, gave them formula and never nursed them at all. Their kid's fine, right? Like why, why me when I care so much, when I so deeply am invested in my child's well-being, it felt like an injustice to me. And I allowed myself to feel that for a little while. And I noticed that I would wake up in the morning and my brain would be swarming with these thoughts before I even left the bed. And I would go to my mat, not knowing what else to do. This was the only thing I knew to help myself. And out the other side, I would feel better, maybe not perfect, but things didn't sting as much. And it was through that clarity that I was able to realize, you know, those why me thoughts, those this is so unfair thoughts aren't helping you at all. They might be true, but they're not helping you. So stop it. Stop that and focus on what you can do to help yourself and your family because those thoughts aren't helping anybody. They're just keeping you in this cycle of feeling sad and frustrated and victimized and no one's going to win there. So I had a hard talk with myself. And in hindsight, I'm like, why did I have to talk to myself (laughs) through this? But- You know, there were no groups I looked for them there were no groups that really were empowering I I went to many trying to find them and a lot of the support groups up there were very victim mentality heavy there was no real leader there was no role model there they were just everyone kind of spewing their upsets into the room and I felt I I remember one, I remember exactly what I was wearing. I remember where I was sitting. I remember leaving that room feeling like I can never go to that again. That was a traumatic experience just as much as the diagnosis itself was. I have to just put blinders on and focus on my own journey. And I did. And so I leaned heavily on my spiritual teachers for help. I leaned into my practice. I leaned into close friends who didn't judge me, who I loved. And I just leaned into whoever I felt I could trust, who was living life in a way that felt strong and supportive and also
0: like using their tools in their life. So I, I did that. You said so many things in here that I want to kind of pull apart a little bit more because so often, you know, when life is lifing or things happen, many of us drop into this like victim mentality. Why me? Right. We have a hard time. And, and I'm not saying not to feel our feelings, right? Like it's important that you acknowledge the grief and the, the what, like we have to go through that. It's part of the grieving process, but to be able to come out the other side and say, okay, how can I look at this differently? However, when we stay in that, why me and that martyrdom place, And then we surround ourselves with other people who are also in that place. It creates this environment of what I refer to as toxic bonding, right? Mm. So we have this sense of belonging, but it actually perpetuates that like martyrdom feeling. And what I know from you, having known you for a long time now, you don't work from that energy, but just, as you said, so many women who, and who have children, neurodiverse children end up in that space that martyrdom energy perpetuates their inability to care for themselves because how do you get out of being a martyr you just try harder so if yeah if you're blaming yourself right so blame is also shame which you know right if you're blaming yourself it's also shame often when we're in shame we like double down on the things to try and like cope with the shame, which I can see around these type of parents would be, I'm just going to pour everything into my child so that maybe then I won't feel the shame around this diagnosis or what did I do wrong or why did this happen to me?
1: I had a call with a lovely woman recently who got on the call and said, I don't know how to care for myself. I don't even know where to start. And I really love her energy and she was really sweet and kind-hearted and and also feisty, like in a cool way. And I was talking to her and I was like, this is a smart woman. I don't buy that she doesn't know how to care for herself. So I asked some questions and then I realized she actually knew exactly how to care for herself but she wasn't doing it. And when she shared that, I said, well, can you tell me why? You know, what's your thought process around not taking the 20 minutes for your walk or your meditation? And she pulled out a binder I kid you not, it was this thick of all the things that were on her agenda to do for her kid and none for her. And she said, my kid, her kid had autism, but he also had some genetic conditions for which she was the carrier. And she said, how can I take 20 minutes for myself when my kid has a genetic condition that I gave him? that he's gonna have for the rest of his life, shouldn't I spend those 20 minutes helping him instead? And I just sat there and, and listened to her for a minute because I was like, this is, which, everything she's feeling is very, very real. And I remember feeling that way, not even to that degree, because my child doesn't have a genetic thing that I passed on, that I know of. I'm sure he has plenty of other things, but I remember listening to her thinking like, this is really intense. She's really feeling so responsible for everything in his life. And I remember talking with her about it and she shared that what she's most afraid of and all the parents I speak to have the same thing in common. It's like the dirty little secret no one wants to talk about. And then when they're on a call with someone who also shares the life of parenting a kid with needs, they start to open up a bit. And it's that they are most afraid of what will happen to their child when they're not here anymore. And that feeds into creating the binder of things, right? I have to do everything I possibly can to prepare my child for the best possible outcome for when I'm not here anymore on this planet to take care of them. And so I sent to her, isn't it better then for you to be here longer so that you have more time to and more energy? to help him and set him up for the most wonderful adulthood. And it hit her really hard because it put her in that place of, oh, wait, all the reasons why I was feeling unworthy or too much shame to care for myself don't really matter anymore if they're going to impact my child negatively. I have to just get out of this loop. But yeah, these are the realities that some of these women face and it and it's intense and I'm also so glad that I get it so that I can talk them through it.
0: What does it take to shift out for your for your people? What does it take to shift out of being in that martyrdom place and many of them and people listening might not even realize that they're in that martyrdom place right because they really see it as being a savior of your of their child and doing all the right things they might not recognize it as being a martyr how do you shift from that energy of being in the soup of everybody just being like this is so hard and cuz it is right like that that's the reality of it to moving into being empowered in that relationship with your child and also allowing yourself to still matter within your relationship with your child?
1: Well, I think a hallmark of my clients, and I always say, if you're not ready to be a meaningful participant in your child's process, and that means working on yourself to be that meaningful participant, I'm not the right coach for you. So everyone who speaks to me knows we're gonna go there. And what's fascinating is they all, when they talk about that martyrdom place, They don't like it. They don't feel good. They have an awareness of I'm doing this because I think I'm supposed to, but I notice that I'm hitting the wine a little hard at night and I don't like that. I know it doesn't make me a good mom to come home feeling like I need to drink another glass of wine to unwind. I'm not proud of it. They don't feel fulfilled. They don't like feeling like that angsty feeling of getting snippy, maybe because they're depleted. They don't like that feeling of looking at their Peloton bike that's collecting dust in the corner, feeling like they haven't moved their bodies. Like they have an awareness around something isn't ideal, but they don't know how to shift it. And to be fair, they don't have a lot of role models who live that same type of life with the same type of complexities who are showing them how to do it. And that's why I felt very responsible for sharing more of my life with people to say, hey, I'm just evidence that you can do this too. Let's do this together, I can help. But I'm really grateful for their awareness around, I'm in this pattern, I don't like it. It doesn't feel good. I know there's a better way. I don't know what that way is, but I trust that it exists. And I think that's the first step to Mm -hmm. us getting out of that.
0: Is it possible I know the answer to this, but I'm gonna ask it anyways. Is it possible for a neurodiverse child to truly thrive in the world if their parent isn't?
1: I'm gonna say long term, no. Maybe in the short term, yes. It's one of those things that I think works until they doesn't. It doesn't.
0: Right. And because and I, I guess I, I see like um if the parent isn't taking care of themselves, they're not going to be regular, their nervous system isn't going to be regulated, which means, yeah. and these these neurodiverse children are incredibly sensitive, like that, they come to the planet with high sensitivity. So they're always reading energy. So when I ask that, it's kind of this curiosity around how can your child really thrive if they're reading your energy and your nervous system is dysregulated?
1: Yeah, I think also you might be able to get away with it when your kids are young for a while Mm -hmm. because they I think blend in with other toddlers more a lot of toddlers don't speak perfect sentences all the time or they don't communicate their emotions perfectly and so I think it's easier to get through that phase of life not caring for yourself also every other parent of toddlers is busy so they validate that they're not caring for themselves either and then as kids get older you see a bigger difference between what neurotypical kids are doing or teens are doing and neurodiverse depending on their diagnosis and their unique situation. And I think at that point is where I start to notice a serious difference because I know for my son who's 13, it's really important that we get him out of the house, get him on trips, do things out in public, which takes more planning, more energy, more boundaries, you know, everything needs to be More thought out. And that takes endurance. And also, your kids are older. They're not going to bed at 7 p.m. anymore. So you don't have like the 12 hour a night kid thing. You've got kids who are older with homework and sports and all that. So you, as the parent, have to be able to handle all those different types of your day. And so I think that it works until it doesn't. If your child is not used to getting out, into the community with you, their safe person during these years and pushing their comfort zone sometimes and, and finding their way, how do you expect them to do it as an adult and be a valuable member of the community that way? I think this is a really crucial point that when you have little kids, you don't want to talk about You don't have the energy to talk about, but as your kids get older, you realize, oh, I can't keep them at home anymore, you know, all the time, or they're gonna be the kid who doesn't blend in in a greater degree. Mm -hmm. So I think it works till it doesn't. I think also parents get those validating stories from others around, we have little kids, we're so busy. A lot of moms kind of, even if neurotypical kids aren't taking great care of themselves. And, you know, when you're amongst that population, you validate each other. And then I see it come to fruition with a lot of health issues and kind of the, I'll use the term nicer ones or chronic fatigue, burnout. I've seen serious illnesses erupt in people because they're, and and they know it's stress and the results are really challenging because it puts them back into survival mode, back into PTSD in a different way. and. It works until it doesn't, it works until your body kind of waves the flag and says, nope, not doing this anymore. And don't let it get to that point. I remember one of my very first yoga teachers who was teaching me how to adjust a student's body in a yoga pose. And she said, you know, Sarah, some people need a feather touch and they'll adapt and they'll move their body right away. And some people need a baseball bat and you really need to like get your hands in there and move them. And she said, when the universe is talking to you though, don't wait for the baseball bat. Let the feather touch be enough. And I think of her, her name is Maryam at I think of her all the time. I think of that all the time. You know, if you're a parent and you're feeling those little feather touches of like, I should probably get my blood work done. I should probably get more sleep at night. Listen to them. Don't wait for the baseball bat because ultimately when you need the endurance as a parent, if you're not in a place to give that to yourself, it's going to have much more complicated consequences when you have an older child who needs more of you.
0: Yeah. and I think it's fair to say like most parents have more than one child as well, right? So they've got a neurodiverse child and they've got neurotypical children and there's different demands everywhere. Yeah. Would you say that most of the families that you work with have unresolved uh, trauma from first receiving that diagnosis?
1: 100%. Or trauma from, and this is just as common, trauma from things happening along the way, not just the first diagnosis. i realize, unfortunately, this population is not treated well in a lot of different types of circumstances. Mm-hmm. I've surrounded myself with people who treat my child well and me well but that took work. It took vetting. And I remember a client of mine once said she went to the place to get your child evaluated in New York city after she'd already gotten, I think a diagnosis from the pediatrician or from the County. She wanted a specialist to look at him and the specialist, this is supposed to be the top-notch doctor in New York city told her when her son hugged her, it wasn't because he loved her. It was just because he liked the sensory input. He didn't know what love was. Wow. Now, her son is similar profile to my son. Non-speaking for the most part. Some, some words, some sounds. But I've worked with her son. He's a bright kid. He does reading comprehension with me. He spells words. He has feelings. He communicates them. And it was so jarring for me to even hear that story. And I'm like, these are the people who are supposed to be taking care of you and that's what they're saying. I was thankful. She's the type of mom who probably would have like stomped off and been like, you're an idiot and we're leaving. But think of all the moms who aren't that strong, who had that conversation and then go off.
0: I know so many families who've just been kicked out of their school and who are already in shame. They're already living in shame because why is this happening to me? So it's just layer on top of layer on top of layer. Like I can just see how that would be crushing to the human spirit.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the things I've noticed is that when you're raising a child, especially a child who's a non-speaker or whose needs are very different from the typical population, you have moments where you're almost bracing yourself, like Don't need to, but past history conditions you to. And it's funny because school knows it. So if school calls me, it could be like, hey, can Rocco go on the field trip next week? The first thing they say is, like, don't worry, everything's fine. Like, before I even say anything, like, everything's fine, don't worry, because they know parents like me are. It's like the other shoe drops and you're back in PTSD. And I've consciously and a lot of healing work so that that doesn't happen. So that whatever I face, I can do so with a clear head and a calm body. And that's not to say I still don't have moments that trigger me that I have to recognize and work through and support myself with and support my child with, of course. But I think if you're not actively caring for yourself in that type of way, it can very intensely feel like the world is against you or that there's always gonna be something there's another thing just down the line oh,
0: how can I, you I, be down there's another thing i was gonna say it it sounds like from the time of the diagnosis it's like your because your nervous system responds to traumas that's its job right like our body's job is to respond to traumas but then it's supposed to come back to homeostasis right like this balanced place where you know we're calm cool and collected But what you're saying is it's this constant heightened, like they're constantly in a nervous system response state. So you're not even seeing and hearing the world because it's like you're living your life. Like you're going to be chased by a bear 24 seven, the state of hypervigilance. So, you know, that comes back to this whole question of, you know, how do you, how do you raise your neurodiverse child to thrive when you're not thriving? You're literally in fight, flight, freeze, fawn, like all the nervous system responses 24-7.
1: You can until you can't and you can until your body breaks down or you can until you're having a nervous breakdown and can't get out of bed. And I've seen those people and they get to that place and then they feel worse because they feel like something is wrong with them. And so I would encourage anyone listening to first get the book. And I'm really proud of the book too, because it's not just this is my story. And it's not just, this is why you should care for yourself. It actually lays out, this is how you do it. Even if you're at home, even if you have no caregiver to help you, even if you can't leave your house because you have a medically complex child, you can take five or 10 minutes and do this thing. So no excuses anymore. You have to take care of yourself. But very often in our, you know, culture of extremes, people think, well, is 10 minutes even worth it then? And they do nothing. But what they don't realize is the result is cumulative and 10 minutes might feel like all you can give right now, but maybe in six months, it's 20 minutes. And you develop the boundaries that you need around caring for yourself. It might take practice if you've never done it and you get to a place where you realize, Oh, I'm stronger. So I'm going to prioritize this thing more because it actually helps everybody. And that's really what I want People to know you can give your kids all the green vegetables in the world, all you know, the screen time limits. If you're emanating an energy of stress and anxiety and overwhelm all the time, they're gonna feel that from you. I'm sure everyone listening has had a moment. I have, I'm not a perfect person of my kid wanting to hug me. And I felt like I had so many things on the to do list, and my brain was so cracked out from being in PTSD for so many years that it was almost like, but I can't. You know, and thankfully I was aware enough to say like, hold up, I can, I'm going to check myself, but if you don't have anyone to
0: check you or have the tools to check yourself,
1: those things feel very real. And your kids remember that stuff.
0: Yeah. It's, you know, I've even noticed a change with Jake, which, you know, this because you and I have worked together over with Jake during COVID and you can go back and listen to that episode. I'll reference it in the show notes. Um, but you know, since his dad has really been getting the support that he needs to regulate his nervous system and work through his trauma, um, we, I personally have seen massive changes in Jake, like how much more calm and settled he is. So although Jake will tell me up and down that, you know, he doesn't pick up on other people's emotions, He's highly sensitive. He's a highly, highly sensitive kid. And I can tell what's going on in the house based on how Jake is responding or reacting, however you want to say it. So there's such a win-win when parents double down on the care for themselves, the energetic impact it's going to have on their kids, not to mention, as you said, it's it's an endurance sport, right? If more parents treated themselves like athletes, you know, how much further can they take their child because they'll actually have more energy to give. Yeah. Powerful. Absolutely. It's. I indeed. want to go ahead.
1: No, it's really powerful. I, I just really appreciate that reflection so much because when you said parents treat themselves like athletes, I thought, oh, most things that I hear from moms are I'm just a mom. Like I'm just a stay-at-home mom. And they use the word just as if mom is this you know, lowly job. And meanwhile, it is the most demanding yeah. job, the most rewarding job too that exists in the world. And the only job that you would work at 24 hours a day with no vacation time given to you, you can go claim that of course, but they have such little value on it And then they still feel guilt stepping away. And it's like, can we just stop for a minute? If you were hiring, if I were hiring someone to fill all of the jobs that I do as a mother for a kid with needs especially, I would be hiring therapists in terms of special therapies for autism. I would be hiring a cook who specializes in nutrition. I would be hiring a chauffeur. I would be hiring someone to take my kid outside and play because movement is essential for him. I would be hiring a night nanny because sometimes he wakes up at night. Not all the time, but sometimes I would be hiring jobs that would easily put me over, I'm going to say $200,000 a year without breaking a sweat. And yet moms will say, I'm just a mom. You're not just a mom. You're the most elite athlete in the entire world who needs more endurance than anyone else. Give that to yourself.
0: Yeah. So powerful, Sarah. So what I would like to ask you before we wrap up this episode in your own journey, what was the most, like, what was the pivotal turning point where you realized like things really had to change for you? So I know you'd been doing your yoga and you would gotten your, you know, you're feeling more regulated, but you were still in this, like, I got to get things right for my kid. I'm, I like, I got to fix this for my kids. So what happened in your world that really changed things for you that has allowed you to get from that diagnosis to where you are today, where you're truly thriving, Rocco's thriving, your daughter's thriving, like things are pretty good in your life. I mean, you still have a lot of demands on your time. Like sometimes I watch and I think, holy, I don't know if I could do that, but we all do the things that are like, we just adapt as women. Like yeah. this is yeah. this is your lesson in life, right? This is your this is what you've been given. Go run with it. And we do. So what really changed everything for you?
1: I was really grateful that I don't believe it was a coincidence at all. One of the people who was assigned to Rocco's case when he was two and getting services through early intervention here in New York is a woman named Ann Alfano, and she's still my mentor today. And in my book, I write about her in how she's this, she's like Mary Poppins. She's just this fun, engaging person. You can't help but open up when you're around her. And that's why she's so gifted with relationship development intervention, working with kids with autism. And so I really warmed up to her and I felt like, oh, this is someone who's spiritual. We speak the same language. She encouraged me to never settle, always encouraged me to believe in my kid. And a few months into working with Rocco, she turned kind of turned on me and said, hey, listen, The only way he is going to really thrive the way you want him to, the way you know he can, is if you stop being an ice queen. She used the words ice queen. If you stop being an ice queen, and I was like, oh, I'd never been called an ice queen before. You stop being an ice queen and stop being afraid that you're going to mess everything up because you're holding it so tight that you're missing this beautiful kid right in front of you. And you need to check yourself. And she said, if he's not responding to you, he is not the problem. You are the problem. And that was like, Ooh, oh, that's a gut punch. I look back in my life, and out of all the conversations I've ever had with anyone that have, you know, shaken me out of my blind spots. One was with you just last week. We'll save that for another episode. <laughs> but the other, the others, this is up there, top three. And I think of it all the time. I'm so glad I had someone in my life to call me out and say like, hey, listen, this is your blind spot. You need to work on this now. And she really made me believe that I was a change maker because I didn't think I was qualified to be the change maker for my kid with autism. I didn't know anything about autism. It was new for me. I was scared. I had a full plate. I had a six month old and a two year old. And I I just, I had a lot happening and I felt unqualified. And she was the one who called BS on that. And really told me like, you need to get yourself into your optimal state so that you can do this, so that you can be with him and let all that crap go. And it made me start asking myself, well, what do I need to be in the optimal state? Because no one else had even cared about talking to me about my optimal state before. It was all about my kid. She was the only one who was like, no, what do you need to be in your optimal state? How do you get that back? And that was what pushed me to go back to India. I really started thinking like, I'm so overwhelmed right now, I don't even want to open the mail when letters come about Rocco's meetings and services. Like I I don't even want to see it. That's not going to help him. How can I be stronger inside? How can I do what I need to do to face these things like a leader and not like a little mouse who's afraid and running away? And so to everyone listening, I would say if you don't have those people in your life yet who are going to call you an ice queen to your face when you need to hear it, You got to go find them and hire them if you don't have them in your life. And I'm so grateful that
0: I did that. Wow. That was a powerful story. And that's the, you know, that's what coaching and mentorship and having those people does, right? It's meant to shake you out of your current reality so you can create a new one. And I'm so grateful that she did because, you know, not only are you a leader in your own life you're now gonna be leading so many other parents who are looking for a leader. The the parents of neurodiverse kids who don't wanna be sitting in those rooms where everybody is just bonding over how hard life is. You're working with the, the parents who really want their kids to thrive, but also deep down know that they get to have an amazing life where they thrive as well. And it's going to benefit their child. Like they actually see caring for themselves as a benefit to their child and not that they're taking away from their child. So, you know, I'm glad we had that conversation at the juice store (laughs) in Sedona. We'll leave (laughs) that for another episode Um, because this book needed to get out into the world. And I'm so proud of you for getting it out there. So for anybody listening, um, if you yourself are parenting a neurodiverse child, if you have somebody in your life who is parenting a neurodiverse child? If somebody just ha- recently had a diagnosis, make sure you get this cop- this book. You can find it. There's my ring light. You can find it on Amazon. And uh, inside what Sarah has is a- an amazing QR code. It's at the front and at the back where you can hop on a call and have a conversation with Sarah about what's going on in your life. She truly is here to support families really thriving. And I'm just, I'm so excited for you. You also started the group that you didn't have yourself. So can you tell everybody a little bit about that? And we'll put the link in the show notes um, so people can check that out as well.
1: Yes. It's called the empowered parenting group. I wanted to be surrounded by the women who said, you know, I want more for myself and my kid and didn't settle for the things that they felt were mediocre or misalignment just because they were the things that were commonly done. And that group didn't exist. Years later, the group still didn't exist. So a couple of months ago, I started the group myself and I love the moms in there because they are committed to their self-care, whether they're just starting with it, whether they're pushing next level self-care, they're committed to learning boundaries. They are committed to being strong advocates and committed to supporting each other. I had the best, most joyful feeling after our first meeting when a mom of a non-speaking 10-year-old came in and was talking about how do I get my child to communicate fluently in any fashion. And the mom of an 18-year-old girl said, well, you don't give up because my daughter just started spelling fluently, communicating, typing, texting a year ago at 17 and so easy to look at your kid compared to neurotypical kids and think oh they're not there yet should i give up it was so important for this woman to have a role model in that group to say oh i tried all these things let me share them with you here's what works in fact it worked so well that now my 18 year old has snarky 18 year old conversations with me and saying mom i don't want to get the f up out of bed tomorrow you know like like an 18 year old instead of assuming that she can't she doesn't have thoughts she doesn't have feelings she's not intelligent and she said I couldn't spend any time feeling sad about all the years and all the people who didn't see her intelligence. I'm just so happy that now we see her intelligence. So this is the type of group that we have. And we have parents of all different kinds of kids and there are speakers, non-speakers, ADHD, autism, you name it, all the things, who are just not willing to settle for things that don't feel right. And they're committed to sharing when things do feel right so that other people can benefit as well. So I would love to have you in there if you're that type of person who believes and knows you can thrive, even if you don't know how to get there yet, we're there to help you. And
0: we have a call every week. So lots of support. So I will put that link to the group in the show notes. I will also put the link to Amazon in the show notes and how you can get a hold of Sarah. So if you want to speak to her more, she is available for that. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm so thrilled for you. I'm so excited to watch how your work transform other people in the world. It's so needed. I really mean what I say when I believe that this book is going to change so many lives and that you are just getting started. So thank you so much for being here and sharing your message. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. All right. So thank you for tuning into this episode and we will catch you on the next one.